right after I finished undergrad, I moved home for a year, uh, fulfilling the millennial stereotype of once again living with your parents. I was 21 years old, $35,000 deep in student loan debt, and my law school dreams had been replaced by a much more confusing and terrifying prospect of seminary. A few days into being home, I got a call from my aunt telling me that a mom of one of my cousin's classmates had broken her leg and was now in need of a full-time nanny. A week later, I was a nanny for three kids under five and had the keys to a minivan. It was like the Twilight Zone. I had just been a college kid going to class a little bit hungover, writing papers in Starbucks in my pajamas, and now three little humans relied on me completely for all of their food, laundry, housekeeping, and driving needs. My little humans and I spent almost every waking moment together for nine very long months until their mom was fully healed. When I started with them, the family told me that they were out of the habit of going to church. They hadn't been in a while, um, and they certainly weren't going to make regular attendance part of their routine now that the mother was bedridden. But for kids who didn't go to church, they sure talked about God a lot. We'd go on walks, and they'd ask questions about who made the flowers, and the trees, and the sunshine, and all the things that they loved so much in this world. The youngest child was 13 months old when I started, but just before I moved back to Chicago, she decided that she'd like to be baptized. She was a very strong-willed child, so she got her way. Uh, the day came for her to be baptized, and we were all at church, something of a miracle, ready to witness that special moment. It was pretty straightforward, a few prayers, a little sprinkle, lifting her up like Simba, but then my little cherub refused to return to her seat in the pews. Not done, she said, not done. Her parents and I exchanged a few very panicked looks until we noticed that she was holding her favorite Mickey Mouse toy. Now do Mickey, she wailed. And without skipping a beat, the pastor lifted her and Mickey back up to the font, repeating the whole process. As she tenderly held her stuffed animal, the pastor, who I'm sure was holding back a laugh, gently sprinkled holy water on Mickey's outstretched head and proclaimed him too, now a child of the Most High God. You could call it sacrilegious if you wanted to, but to this day, this is my favorite baptism story, even though I've done a few of my own over the years. It reminds me that these sacred moments are a meeting of the divine and the human, the eternal God and a stubborn child with her Mickey Mouse toy. These moments and stories are worth holding on to. So as we dig a little deeper into today's text from Romans, I invite you to be thinking about your own memories, your memories of the sacraments of baptism and the table and what they mean for you. Let's pray. Loving God, we are so grateful to be your children and that you are not done with us yet. Be with us as we search your word this morning and may what we find transform us more and more into the people that you have called us to be. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Last summer, I taught a three-week intensive course on the writings of Paul. Four hours a day of intense theology and exegesis, even for a nerd like me, isn't exactly my idea of a good time. My six students and I spent a lot of time dissecting Paul's letters, when he wrote them, from where, and why. And we spent perhaps the most time on Paul's magnum opus, his epistle to the church in Rome. Now, compared to the other epistles, Romans reads much more like a theology textbook, paragraph after paragraph of systematic theology, written between a missionary and a church full of people he's never met. Romans is a rich text, full of depth and nuance, but my students remarked that Paul's letters seemed to be a poor companion to the more exciting narratives found in the four Gospels. I tend to agree with them in some ways. This heavily dogmatic text can be less compelling than the words of God incarnate. But today we're going to explore the deeper reality of Paul's words. And I hope that you'll find it as captivating as my students did once we separated the math from the mystery. Now, for people who study actual math, Paul's theology might not seem like math at all. But as someone who studies theology and is terrible at math, Paul's words read to me much more like an extended proof. If this, then this. If that, then thus. There's a sequence and a logic to his writing, a mathematical precision with which he moves from subject to subject, from theme to theme. I tried to follow along in these first couple chapters of Romans and map it out in simple equations that even I could understand. Here's what I came up with. We start with sin plus Jesus equals the cross. And then the cross plus the resurrection equals the good news. Then the good news plus baptism equals salvation. And lastly, salvation equals being dead to sin plus alive in Christ. These last two equations are the most applicable to our passage today from chapter 6. Paul continues his defense of the gospel, addressing critics who claimed that a faith-based gospel, a gospel centered on grace instead of law, was too ambiguous. For people used to logic and rules, grace didn't make much sense. For many of Paul's opponents, the salvation math was much more complicated, involving the 613 individual laws of the Torah, ritual purity, food restrictions, and circumcision. For the brand new church, this concept of grace, the kind of grace that wipes away sin and replaces it with righteousness, is a bit like irrational numbers. It's like a little bit of a brain bender. And baptism, one of our outward signs of inward grace, is an important topic for this new community of believers. I'm sure you've heard dozens of sermons about baptism at this point, and probably many more about being free from sin. I know that I have. So what more could I possibly say about a topic that Christians have been thinking about, writing about, 
arguing about and going to war about for centuries. An ocean of ink has been spilled by pastors and theologians on this simple and yet difficult question. And I'm telling you now that I don't expect to solve the puzzle today. That is not this moment. I'd rather use this time this morning to focus on the reality of baptism and the death of sin beyond the math, beyond the equations and the calculus, centering on the mystery of that moment and the new life that we are brought into. Instead of asking who or what or when or where or how, we're going to, question, we're going to concentrate on the question of why. You see, those questions that try to get at the mechanics of it all, it's almost as if we think that if we had all the answers, we could figure this sacrament out. If all the components added up, we could know for certain that our bodies, plus this holy water, equal belonging to God. But this faith-based gospel and this faith-based baptism were not quantitative to begin with. And the result of baptism is much more than the sum of its parts. Our faith-based gospel doesn't ask how we measure up or ask us to name how many times we've fallen short. This baptism that ushers us into transformation doesn't count our sins before we can partake. Paul says that this act of baptism whether it's full immersion or just a sprinkle, infant or adult believer, occurring in a Middle Eastern stream or in a modern font, it all results in a new person, a new way of being, an entirely new life, free from sin and everything else that keeps us from wholeness and liberation. Paul is adamant that the water of baptism doesn't just make us superficially clean. It fundamentally changes us down to our very souls. And there's no math to explain it or an equation that can capture it. It is a qualitative change, something that can't be measured or simplified. According to Paul, entering into baptism means to be so immersed in Christ to participate in his life and death and resurrection so fully that our bodies are physically and spiritually joined to Christ, our spirits united with him for eternity. We encounter Christ in the water, and we are changed forever because of it. It is a mystical experience, a moment that transcends our human categories how can we be our old selves one moment, but completely new the next? Because what God does in baptism is beyond us. It is not something that we could do for ourselves. It is not something that we could do in our showers, even though the water is the same. I happen to like the mystery of it all. The question's not quite fully answered because it reminds me that the God we serve is much bigger than we could ever imagine. Even this God who walked among us, who came into our world in the flesh, who entered into the waters of his own baptism, knows and understands the divine 
more than we ever will. I think it's important for us to be reminded sometimes that all of our theology, all of our thoughts about sin and salvation, they are just finite human beings straining for a glimpse of the divine. So much of our simple math is just mystery in disguise. So if we are open to this mystery and this place of admitting the limits of our understanding, let's continue to make room for new ways of being and thinking that don't have easy answers and simplified truths. Many sermons that I've heard on this topic of baptism and the death of sin call on the congregation to remember your baptism. This doesn't always land with me because I was baptized as an infant and have no memory of that day and never will. But in light of this mystical reality, I started to have new thoughts about what this remembrance could mean. This is my answer to the question of why. If the water transforms us into a new life in Christ, a new being completely joined to Christ's life and death and resurrection, then to remember one's baptism is to be reminded that we share in the work of Christ in the world and the restoration of all things. If we are dead to sin and alive in Christ, we are immersed in feeding the hungry, visiting the sick, comforting the grieving, freeing those in bondage, and confronting greed in our temples. If we do not let sin reign in our world, then we participate in the ultimate sacrifice, the laying down of our lives, the taking up of our crosses, sometimes calling out, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. If there is no part of ourselves that is an instrument of wickedness, then we join in the rolling away of stones. We join in the defeat of all death and suffering, and we rejoice in the promise of eternal life. If sin is no longer our master, it is because we live with Christ, we die as Christ, and we are raised alongside Christ. Baptism is an ongoing process of living and dying like Christ and continuing to usher in the new life of God's kingdom. Baptism is an enduring experience of our hands and feet, the tangible reality of our bodies as God makes all things new. So I'm here to tell you this morning, my friends, that the mystery is so much better than the math. No more measuring or counting or quantifying. No more desperate search for logic or the mechanics. The real experience of being made new is more satisfying than theological certainty could ever hope to be. Feeling connected to God and the movement of the Holy Spirit in the world is more freeing than any label or denominational identity could ever give us. Welcoming the mysterious presence of the creator of the universe into our very bodies produces more wholeness than empty ritual or rules have ever offered. And I promise you, this mystery of grace is worth it.
The mystery of being liberated from brokenness is worth it. The mystery of entering into new life as God's partner in this world is worth it. So join me in this mystery. Come with your outstretched hands and Mickey Mouse toys if you've got them. Come to the water. Come to the table. The grace of God and the peace that passes all understanding waits for you to meet you there. Amen.